Our scripture that was read earlier in your hearing came from John, the third chapter, and the 16th through the 18th verse. And I'll read it again so that we're all on the same page. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I dare say that many of you here are very familiar with this passage of Scripture. It is for the most part considered the all-time singular phrase that completely encapsulates the essence of the gospel. If you are at any time unsure about telling someone what the gospel is, you need not do much more than to simply quote John 3.16. But one of the things that I'm very conscious about doing as I lead this ministry is to challenge some long-held beliefs and customs that are not necessarily grounded adequately in the whole truth of what the Bible speaks. What I mean is, it is not sufficient for me to just come and to simply just accept what everyone says about the texts. I always want to look more at what the authors meant. I want us to be thinking people. We don't leave our brains at the door when we come into the house of the Lord. And scripture is not just about attaining knowledge, but it's also understanding as well. So for this morning's worship service, I want to take a look at this very familiar passage of scripture to see if there may be something we may have overlooked in our knowledge and familiarity with the text. And so I want to have a great appreciation for Jesus' words. And I've thus titled this sermon simply, For the Love of You. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we have now come to the preaching hour. No one came here to hear me, they came to hear you. So Lord, I have studied and I have prepared and I've done all that I know how to do. But it's not what I do that really matters, it's what you do. So I ask that you send the teacher and the preacher and that you move me out of the way and forgive all of my mess-ups and my imperfections, but that you weave your Holy Spirit through my body and incarnate your spirit in my flesh and use now these lips of clay that I may speak truth with power and authority. I have no desire to be glorified. I have no desire to be praised. I have no desire to be admired. I only have a desire to do your work. So edify your body, I pray, in Jesus' holy name. And the church said amen. Amen, amen and amen. Now, the, 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 the scripture is actually a part of a larger context. There is, it's, it's one thing to just take that text out and just start to talk about it, but it's part of something larger. Now, here's what's going on for all who may not know. Jesus is talking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. He is actually a very prominent person in, as part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That is their leadership. That is, the, the, great, that is the, the Congress, if you will, of the Jewish people. And Nicodemus is one of them. He may as well be, he's not the high priest, but he might as well be like the speaker of the house or one of those kinds of people. He's like a really big and important person. So the text tells us that he comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, I know that you are a man from God because no one can do the things that you do. And I find this fascinating because what you need to understand about this context, about this encounter that this man Nicodemus is having with Jesus is that Jesus is really a nobody. Nicodemus is a somebody. Nicodemus went to the best rabbinic schools. Nicodemus went to Harvard and Yale together at the same time. Nicodemus is a really smart man. Jesus is a rabbi who the Bible tells us has nowhere to lay his head. He walks the street, streets of Galilee. And as he's walking around, he's doing these wonderful and amazing things. And so Nicodemus, being the educated man that he is, looks at this man, Jesus, and Nicodemus is perplexed. So he comes to Jesus and he says, Something is up with you. You must be a man from God. Because no one can do the things that you do. Now here's what I find remarkable about that exchange. Let's say, for example, you were trained in classical music. You know all of the great composers, Mozart and Beethoven, and you know all the complexities of, of, of their comp compositions and their arrangements. You went to Juilliard and all the other arts that you can go to. You are so smart when it comes to music that even from a note or even a key, you can actually probably tell who the composer is when they did it in the 1800s. I mean, you are just that good. So let's say you are on the subway in New York City waiting for the D train. And on the subway, there is a little barefoot guy, and he's playing something on a violin. And you're listening to it very carefully, and you're saying to yourself, there is no way that that young man could be playing that music in that way because you have been so trained. You have been so skilled that it takes years and years and years of study to be able to put together those notes in the way that this young barefooted guy on the platform, on the subway, seems to be doing it with such mastery. This is what confronts Nicodemus. Nicodemus sees this rabbi who has not been trained and he's doing things and saying things with authority in a way that says, wait a second, you did not go to Harvard. You did not go to Yale or Columbia. How is it possible that you barefoot rabbi, as the people call you, because you're not even a real rabbi, are able to do these amazing things? That's what's confronting Nicodemus, and he is perplexed. The second thing that we find perplexing in this text is that the Bible tells us that Nicodemus comes to Jesus when? At night. And John uses this metaphor often in his writings. The fact that people come at 
night or things happen at night. Case in point, when Judas betrayed Jesus, it said that after Judas left, it was night. And so the symbolism there is saying that whenever you come to Jesus, you are coming to the light, which is where you get illumination and education and you get knowledge and you get wisdom and it increases. But whenever you move away from Jesus, it becomes dark. It becomes night. You become something other than educated. So these two things are at play when this great man comes to Jesus at night and says, I, I, I don't really understand who you really are. Now let me read for you the text so that you are all together in the same place with Nicodemus. The Bible tells us, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus then says to him, Wait a second, how can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This is a fascinating dialogue. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? You're not making any sense to me. That's not in the text, I'm just saying. Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher of Israel? Did you go to Harvard and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. You don't believe what it is that we are telling you from what we have seen. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly and spiritual things? Jesus then does something interesting here. He says, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, me, the Son of Man. But as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, now I wanted to read the whole passage because I want you to imagine what's going on between Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus is talking way over Nicodemus' head. Jesus is playing a major piece on the piano. And Nicodemus is struggling to comprehend the composition. But I want you to look specifically at the passage, our passage today. It simply said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, in reading the text this way, and I want you to stay with me, in reading the text this way, for God so loved the world, what it's actually doing is that it actually is blurring the real thrust of what Jesus is actually saying. Here's what I mean. It seems to be saying that, that, that God is just so in love with me and you. And it gives us this feeling that places the emphasis on you and me. God, so you are so wonderful that God would do what? Would, would send his son because he's so in love with me and you. This is appealing to the emotion of God. That's what this text, when you read it, for God so loved the world. It's important to know because when you think and read the text this way, it makes us feel better about ourselves. It's almost as if we're saying that, you know, you know, and again, I'm not saying this is a wrong way to think about the text. I'm simply saying by reading the text this way, what it does to us, it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. And so by feeling better about ourselves, it says, even if I'm an obnoxious pig, God loves me anyway. So what if I'm a disgusting, backbiting cheat? God loves me anyway. Yes, he loves you. But his love does not keep you continuing to be an obnoxious, disgusting, backbiting, cheating pig. God's love is designed to change you, to transform you, to make you something other than what you really are. And so if I'm thinking and stuck in the place where, where, where I'm so in love with the emotions of God, that God so loves me, then I have a license to sin. God forbid. Unless God's love changes you, it is worthless and useless and a waste of God's love. Amen. So now let me take you a little bit behind the scenes. Very briefly, I'm not going to overwhelm you with my Bible study. But in the Greek, there is a two-word combination that uses for and so. Now, one of the things that we do when we are studying the Bible and preparing for sermons, just so, and again, this is just a sidebar, is that we look at words and how they're used in the text. We also look at how they're used, how often they are used, and in what context those words are used so that we can extract a greater meaning from it. Now, what I've discovered is that this combination is actually used nine times throughout the New Testament. And every time that it's used, with the exception of this text, those word combination actually means, for this is the way. See, it's not that so long, God, for God so, no, it's for in this way, or for this is the way. That's how it's retranslated the eight other times. And if you try to put in the so in those eight other times, it don't make any sense. So my question is, why would they say so in this context and not how it's used everywhere else? Now, again, don't go throwing your Bibles out. <laughs> but the new... English translation got it right because this is how they translated it. They go, for this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one only son that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, if we are thinking people, if you read the second one, I don't see the God loves me so much. It's pointing to something before in the text. 
It's, you see, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to understand something that is way over Nicodemus' head. And so in, in, in trying to explain, Jesus says to Nicodemus, dude, you see, this is the way that God loved the world. So to find the this is the way, you kind of have to go back to what Jesus is talking about. And you do that by going to the verses before this one. So we go there. Now, it says in the text, right, that he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent. Remember he said that? So let's see in Numbers 21 and 6 verse 9 what Jesus is referring to. The Bible tells us that the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Talking about the Hebrews. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now Jesus is still talking to Nicodemus and he's referring Nicodemus who knows everything about the law. He's saying, go back to numbers. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This is the, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, for this is the way that God loved the world. You see, this picture shows you a, a, a depiction of the people around and Moses made this bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And as the people were getting bit by snakes, venomous snakes, all they needed to do was to look to the pole with the bronze snake and they would live. So, so, so this is curious because, because what Jesus is saying, for this is the way that God loved the people. Going back to the text, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen. And you do not accept our testimony. You don't believe what we're telling you. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe me, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Here comes the text. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. My brothers and my sisters, what I'm trying to get you to see that what Jesus was telling Moses was saying that it's not that God is just so in love with you, which he is. But God's love for the world is demonstrated through his own sacrifice. He says, in the very same way that those people needed to live, I'm telling you, Nicodemus, that in the very same way, you're going to live. Because if you believe that when they lift me up, all you need to do is look and live. When I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. God gave his only begotten son and by lifting him up and exalting him as a spectacle 
It doesn't matter what snake bites you. It doesn't matter if even you bit yourself. All you need to do is to look and live. And what I just said to you, I want you to hear in your spirits. You see, the Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He became the very thing that God despises. So when Jesus was lifted up on that cross and he shouted out, Father, why have you forsaken me? It's because he became the very thing that God hates so that he, in his sacrifice, could become the very thing that God loves. It's an exchange, a divine exchange. And so my brothers and my sisters, without going too far into this, there's a reason why I wanted to help you to see that what you need to understand is when you offer yourself for the benefit of someone else, you are closer to the heart of God than you know. Our problem is we are selfish. Our problem is we are not willing to give anything that would mean something good for someone else. And why this is important and poignant is because even today as we talk about organ donation and giving opportunity and hope to other people, what I'm saying is most of us probably don't because we think we're going to live forever. And the truth of the matter is you will and I will die. But can my life mean something for someone else? Can my sacrifice be an opportunity for someone else to live? Can I give of myself so that someone else can benefit? And this is what I mean by for the love of you. You see, Jesus Christ loved you so much that he gave himself for you. The question is, who do you love? Who will you save? Who will benefit from you having been on this earth? For God so loved the world that he gave. Love always gives and as I close, we need to keep before us the full measure of God's love. And that includes understanding what the cross actually meant. Jesus says, if any man love me or will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And we often read these texts, and they're wonderful, and we just love to say them. You know, if any man love me, let him just take up his cross. And we make it glamorous. But it's paramount to saying, if any man will come after me, let him bring along with him his coffin. It's a symbol of death. It's a symbol of you having given everything that you can for the benefit of someone else. That is the challenge of the Christian. And so what God did, he gave his best himself. Therefore, we should give the best of ourselves. Now, I ain't telling y'all to go out there and just go here. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is govern yourself. As, as the doctor read earlier, your body is a holy. It's, it's, it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you take care of yourself knowing that if you do the best you can to make yourself as clean as possible, then what you are doing is you are honoring not only your temple, but the fact that even in your demise, you can still offer life. 
Why God did it? Because God loved us. Therefore, we should love others as we love ourselves. What do we get? Well, we get salvation and eternal life. Therefore, we offer our bodies of living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, so others can get the benefit. And how do we get it? By believing faith. Freely, it's been given to us. Freely, we give it. So as I close, here are my companion scriptures to bring this to a close. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And watch this. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. And if that were not enough, I got another companion scripture found in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this but to lay down one's life for one's friends. I know it was a very familiar scripture. And again, I'm not asking you to throw out your Bibles and your translation. I still love the fact that God so loved me. I like it. I love it. God so is so in love with me. He makes it about me by making it about him. But the other part is that I so love him for loving me first. And because he loves me first, I am obligated and required to love you even more. And so I hope that this has been an opportunity for you to take a new look at a familiar passage and to recognize that just as the serpent was lifted up, so too was Christ lifted up for you and for me. And you are worth it. You are worth it. Because if you were not worth it, he would not have done it. That's the God we serve. And I love him for it. And I love you for loving him. Everyone standing at this time. If you are here and you have never yet asked the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart for yourself. And you, 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 you've always known these scriptures, but you never really knew the depths to which God wants you as part of his family. Then we invite you to come and to give your heart to the Lord and make it real. Because you can't hang out on your grandmothers or your grandfathers or your sisters or your cousins or your brothers or your uncle or your mother or your father's faith. You must make this walk for yourself. And how you know we loved you? We rolled out the red carpet just for you. We did all this just for you. So if you are here today and you've never asked the Lord into your heart for yourself, we invite you to join our spiritual family as we endeavor to show love to each other. Won't you come now as you feel so late? So I can be home, so I can tell everyone.